John chapter 11. Let's open up our Bibles. John 11. Pretty remarkable to me that in our culture, even as post-Christian as our culture often seems, it's remarkable to me how many people know the name Lazarus. Isn't that interesting? And how many people, even unchurched people, know not only the name Lazarus, but they know something about, oh yeah, Lazarus, that's that guy that was raised from the dead. And they'll actually say things like that, and they'll talk about that, and they'll, they'll accept it. I remember back in the 80s, Sting had a song called The Lazarus Heart. And I'm like, how does he know about Lazarus? You know, and, and that was way back then. And you'll hear, you'll hear Lazarus references in pop music or on TV or in books that you read. It's, it's just strange to me. People have heard and, and somehow latched onto that story, and it's become part of the really the, the world's language this reference to this guy named Lazarus. What amazes me is that people will know about Lazarus and be completely unaware of the one who did raise him from the dead, about whom the whole miracle happened. It's, it's all about Jesus. It's about Jesus, not Lazarus. Well, Lazarus is the subject of, uh, well, no, he's not. He's not. He, he was just there. He actually didn't do much except walk out of the tomb. But <laughs> Jesus is the subject of what we're gonna talk about this morning. We've been in John 11, we looked at it and heard Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life. Talked about that last Sunday morning as we were gathering together on Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. We read through the entire story and studied through it, all 57 verses on Wednesday night to get a sense of the whole thing. But something grabbed me as we were studying Wednesday. And I had to come back to this and spend a little more time here. I, I, I told everyone here Wednesday night, we're gonna slow up a bit now that we're halfway through John. We're gonna slow up and, and take a little more time in the last half. See, the first half is the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. The last half is the final week and one post-resurrection appearance. It obviously was important to the Spirit that half of the Gospel of John be spent on that one week. So we're gonna take some time and really look at it. And this morning, uh, I wanna give you one verse. John chapter 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. Right in the middle of the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which clearly was intentional on the part of Jesus is why he's late to the funeral Jesus wept father we need to let that sink in and take a moment and recognize something here that is pretty stunning and Lord can be pretty confusing too especially when we understand the circumstances around which Jesus wept by which Jesus wept of all the moments in scripture where we see sorrow in the eyes of Jesus, this is a strange one. And I pray, Father, rather than quickly explain it away, that you would, by your spirit, teach us. Help us to understand what's behind this. What's going on here? We wait to learn from you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm gonna sit down just to be comfortable because you all look so comfortable. <laughs> Among the most uh, defining elements of our humanity is the ability to grieve, to weep, to be sorrowful. Puppies will whine, you know, orcas may even pine. <laughs> Gorillas will tear up. But my friends, human sorrow is fundamentally different than anything any animals experience. This is really important. In fact, before we even get any further into this, I need to say to you all, I love animals. I really do. My wife especially loves animals. I mean, our front yard has turned into a menagerie. Everything she can buy that invites the animals of the woods to our front yard, she's got out there. And they're all showing up, you know? And so she loves to see the deer. I see them eating my stuff, you know, I'm like, but, but it, it's beautiful, the deer and the birds, and they all return in the springtime, and the little squirrels running around, and, you know, and the rats, I mean, I love them all. <laughs> I do love animals, 
I, I, I see animals as, as such a, a beautiful gift of God to us as human beings. And they do bring us comfort, our, our pets do. But listen, elevating and equalizing animals to a par with human beings is honestly offensive to me. And should be to you too as followers of Jesus. Animals and humans are not equivalent. We are not on the same plane. And I can prove it to you. I love the old line that was said in a very famous movie back in the 80s that uh, probably would be offensive to the national you know, consciousness today. And that is, I am not an animal. I am a human being. And there's a vast difference. Body, soul, and spirit we have the unique distinction above all creation of having been made in the image of God. No animal was made in the image of God. You were. I was. We are different. We have a soul. We have a spirit. We have an eternality. I'm not going to get into whether or not all dogs go to heaven. You know, have the argument. I've gotten in trouble for saying they don't, so I'm not going to say it this morning. Where does Fluffy go? We can talk about Fluffy. Just know that Fluffy had a good life, especially if you bought him treats. Come on. But listen to me. This idea of, of, of putting animals on par, of, of leveling it all out and saying we're all just, you know, we're one as creation is not biblical. And this is my concern. It's not biblical. The Bible says we are made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, God created man, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Which, by the way, also tells you the pattern of gender. We are different than the animal kingdom. Created male and female in the image of God. No other creature has been created in the image of the creator. That's just biblical truth. And that's important because think about how this works. John chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So get this, understand God created in his image, right? And then in Jesus, God put on Flesh, the very image of his unique human creation. God did not become dog. God did not become a cat, did not become a rat. God became a human being. The very crown of his creation, we could call it, the Bible does, the crown of his creation created in his image, that's what he put on when he came to dwell among us. And so in the middle of this gospel, the most outspoken of the four gospels, by the way, on the godness of Jesus, we encounter a deeply human two-word verse, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And you need to understand that is fundamentally different than any emotion, if we can even call it that, that any animal expresses. The whining, the, the, the pining, the, the, the shrinking back that, that animals will do. This is behavioral. Jesus wept like you weep, like I weep. He grieved like we grieve because Jesus was God made flesh, human flesh, a human being. And we have been made in the image of God. Of all the things in our nature that God knows from experience in the person of Jesus Christ, grief is right at the top of the list. In fact, the Bible says, Isaiah 53, verse three, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus wept. God grieved. And I'm not sure if there are any more comforting words in Scripture that Jesus wept. He will weep again. In fact, pretty soon after this, in the gospel narrative, he's gonna weep again. Luke 19, 41 says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. And then in Gethsemane, he's gonna, agree, he's gonna grieve again, bitterly this time, 
Matthew 26, 38, he said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Luke 22, 44, being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. Hebrews chapter five, verse seven, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death And he was heard because of his piety. Charles Spurgeon says, he suffered all the innocent infirmities of our nature. Sometimes we are told that if we really believed that our friends would rise again and that they are safe and happy even now, we should not weep. Why not? Jesus did. There cannot be any error in following where Jesus leads the way. Listen to that last sentence again. I love that. There cannot be any error in following where Jesus leads the way. And Jesus wept. So right there, understand that weeping is not ungodly. That weeping is part of the deal. In fact, I would even say weeping many times is washing. There is something about weeping and sorrow that washes our our hearts in loss, in grief, in sorrow, that weeping helps wash out some of that pain. Jesus wept, and there cannot be any error in following where Jesus leads the way. As we look into his eyes, see his tears, and hear the grief in his heart, we realize something marvelous. He gets us. He really does understand us. He's been there. He knows. In those moments of your deepest grief, you need to know that Jesus wept. We also need to know, and I think many of you recognize this, that you will not get through life without times of weeping or seasons of grief. That's part of the deal. Nobody skirts by it. The most optimistic person in the world is going to weep. The most glasses half full dude is going to know sorrow. It's part of the human condition, the human experience. C.S. Lewis, in his book, A Grief Observed, said, why love if losing hurts so much? I have no answers anymore, only the life I have lived. Twice in that life, I've been given the choice as a boy and as a man. The boy chose safety. The man chooses suffering. And he says the pain now is part of the happiness then. That's the deal. I I realized in reading that again that when he said the pain now is part of the happiness then, he was talking about then as in before. I would flip it the other way, that the pain now is part of the happiness then that the sorrow now is part of our coming joy. Building toward that day when gloriously, wonderfully, we will finally be face to face with Jesus, looking into the eyes of the one who wept. It's part of the deal. In 1969, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote the now famous book called On Death and Dying. It's been used many times over. And in that book, she described, you know this, the five stages of grief. And it's been expanded and used in many different ways, but it's, it's well-documented emotionally that we do go through these various stages of grieving and of weeping and of loss and sorrow in our lives. When something tragic happens or we lose a dear loved one, then we go through these stages typically. And these stages are personal. That is, they're non-linear and, and, and they are non-sequential And they're not exactly the same for everyone, but there is a generic. When you look at these five stages, you go, yeah, yeah, I I can see that. Yeah, some would say, yes, I've been through that. I've experienced all of that. Sometimes the different stages are shorter or longer. Sometimes they go out of order. Hey, we're human beings and we're often out of order. But it depends on a person's circumstance, these stages of grief. Or it depends on the support network that an individual may have or, or their maturity or or whether the grief is shared with a group of people rather than all by yourself. So there are all kinds of things that can impact this. But with your permission, I really want to take a minute this morning. I don't normally like to do this. I like to just stick right with the scriptures, but I want to veer just for a moment and, and 
Consider these five stages, just look at them, especially for anyone who is in right now the painful process of grieving. Or perhaps for someone to whom grief and sorrow is unexpectedly coming, it may be right around the corner and you don't know. Or even for the sake of simply as a church fellowship, having compassion for those of our brothers and sisters who are experiencing deep personal loss, uh, understanding maybe some empathy. So I'd like to just briefly consider these and, and you can jot them down or just listen if you'd like. Five stages of grief. Number one, the first stage they talk about is denial. Denial. That's a, that state of shock and disbelief. You can't, can't hardly even accept that this tragic event has even happened. Denial. Uh, it, it's it's that, that sense that this is, this is a dream. This, this can't even be real, what's going on right now, or, or maybe more a nightmare. Denial. I, I, I can't accept that this has taken place. Denial is often quickly followed by anger. In the grieving process, a lashing out, a, a blaming, and that is either of others or of self. Why didn't I, if only I had, in fact, this, this includes like false guilt, this anger, blame, guilt. In fact, in John 11, we're still within just days of the loss of the sisters, Mary and Martha, losing their brother Lazarus. He had died. They sent word to Jesus. The story's all here in John 11. And they sent word while Lazarus was sick, come quickly. At least, at least maybe if we can get Jesus here, he can heal him from this sickness. And Jesus intentionally delays and so the sisters now feel this loss and it's interesting, both sisters lash out at Jesus. And when I say lash out, not in an accusatory way, but they both say the exact same thing, lashing out as it were from their pain. Back in verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's a mix of denial and anger. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And if you skip down to verse 32, then Mary says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They're grieving. So they're in this process of grief. And again, whether it's the five stages of Kubler-Ross or, or it's just that we process grief as we go through it, it makes no difference. But they're there. They're processing their grief. And after denial and anger, Kubler-Ross says the third stage tends to be bargaining. Bargaining. That's either with God or, or seeking ways. Really what bargaining is, is trying to regain control of your life. Because typically when severe tragedy happens, we feel out of control. And that's a terrifying thing for human beings. I can't, if this can happen, how can I? And we want to get, regain control, so we start to talk to God about it if we're believers and we'll say, Lord, I, I will commit to you if, if you can just make this go away or make this better. Or within that bargaining, we see Martha do it. In fact, she does it immediately. In verse 22, she says, even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you which out of grief is as if to say to Jesus, even now, if there's anything we can, you know, to change the circumstance. She's not even to the point yet of acknowledging that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. She's just saying, even now, there's gotta be something we can do. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression. Depression is the one that tends to, as people grieve, settle in, usually for longer. It's a period of isolation and loneliness and sorrow, and it will come after, for example, a funeral of a beloved. It will come after when the rest of the world has, seems like it's all go, gone back to life, but you're left still in that place of grieving, and so that depression settles. It's a sense that no one else is where I am right now. Let me just remind you in every situation that we've just talked about, whether you're in denial or anger or bargaining or you've settled into that place of depression, Jesus gets it. And you may say, no one else knows where I am. Jesus knows where you are. He knows right where you are and you are not alone in that sorrow. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
But the thing about depression is that life keeps moving forward. It keeps going on. And eventually in the five stages of grief, what will happen is acceptance. And this is a a, a positive to understand. Eventually, acceptance does come back around. You know why? Because no emotion is sustainable. Can't just keep it going forever. And eventually, a person will come to terms with the loss, the reality of it. There's a reconciliation in mind and in heart, a sense of um, peace, I guess. Not peace as the Lord gives, but there's a sense of peace, a, a calm about, okay, this is, and, and people will then start to eventually get on with life. Now, this is from a very secular perspective. This is just human emotion we're talking about. I haven't even touched on the spiritual side and the impact of faith in Jesus on all of this. But they say, speaking again secularly, that time heals all wounds. That's not true. Time does not heal all wounds. And I don't say that to discourage anyone who's just waiting for it to get better, but it is simply not true. Time actually can do the opposite. Time can actually infect the wound. Time can harden the wound. And I'm talking about the untended wounds of life. As David said in Psalm 38, verse four, my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. Or Isaiah chapter one, verse five, the Lord says, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Many times, sorrow, suffering, grief, and loss can actually cause wounds that stay with the person their entire life. They don't get better, they get worse, they get hardened, they cause people to pull back from other people. I've told our ministry staff this more than once. For the sake of ministry, we need to pray for thick skin and soft hearts because the opposite can happen. And any of you who who deal in a life where you're tending to people where you're in a, a you know, a care, caring for others type of a, of a business or job, my friends, thick skin is necessary and soft hearts because the opposite is very dangerous. Beware of those who have thin skin and hard hearts. They're the dangerous ones. Time does not heal all wounds. Only Jesus contend and restore and heal all wounds. Only Jesus can do that. You can wait for time to make it happen, but time tends to embitter and harden, whereas Jesus Christ softens and encourages and builds up and strengthens and brings you back to that place where it's real peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give with you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Jesus says, Isaiah 42, verse three, a bruised reed he will not break. A dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. John 14, verse one, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And as I just quoted John 14, 27, my peace I give to you, Jesus says. It's not like the world. The world may give you resolution to a difficult time, but your heart can remain wounded and, and calloused and hardened, whereas Jesus gives a peace that keeps the heart soft. John 16, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, by the way, on the night before their greatest loss. Jesus says, I've spoken these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world which means I've overcome your sorrow, I have overcome your grief, I have overcome your weeping, I have overcome your pain, I've overcome the world. Only Jesus can tend our hearts to such a degree that he heals all wounds. Kubler-Ross was onto something uh, emotionally, but there's a far better model in Jesus Christ 
See, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, specifically talking about death and the loss of loved ones. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest of the world. Doesn't mean you don't grieve, but your grief is different. Your grief in Christ is different. Your grief in Jesus is the emotional flow, is the allowing of that pain and that sorrow to be expressed and to be experienced and to be felt, of course. And yes, you should. And yes, it's good to move through that grief. But in Jesus, you move through that grief with hope that is unlike any hope that the world can possibly comprehend. And here's the model. Here's the great model for us in this life, moving through these uh, times of sorrow and grief. Kubler-Ross is one thing. Kubler-Ross basically just describes the, the stages. You know what it doesn't do? Give answer to those stages. I, I've shared before, I was a, a psychology student in my undergrad and in grad school, I, I went from undergrad, got a bachelor's in psychology. I originally was going for a ministry degree, but then decided I'm no good at that, so I'll do psychology instead. <laughs> Pretty funny. And, and, and then I started to realize I'm, I'm in a master's in clinical psychology, realizing I can't do anybody any good if I can't give them Jesus. So I left that behind and God drew me right back into ministry, which is where I think he wanted me to be in the first place. I still haven't figured out why. But Romans chapter five, see, this is the answer. Here are the stages of grief. Well, that's great. Now I know what I'm going through. How do I get to the other side? How do I get to the other side with any amount of joy and healing and hope? And the Bible gives us that. Jesus gives us that. Listen to this. Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, so, so the process begins with the fact that I am just as if I'd never sinned, justified. Justified by faith. Because of this, now, guess what? I have peace with God through my Lord Jesus Christ. This sets us up for everything coming down the pike. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God, even in your sorrow, even in your grief, even in loss, I can exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, now watch this process, we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Now, tribulation does not bring about perseverance outside of Christ. Tribulation without Jesus brings about hardness, toughness. Perseverance in Jesus is not toughness. Perseverance is, is the ability to continue on because Jesus is with you and remaining soft-hearted in the process. So he says, we have... We exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character. Again, that doesn't work outside of Jesus. Proven character brings about hope. And then Paul says, and hope does not disappoint. I just love that. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That's how our hearts remain soft. We have a hope that is real and eternal and it is spurred by love. The love of God in me, it strengthens and, and saves my hope. And he says, this love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so again, the Spirit is present. We're never alone in our grief, never alone in our sorrows. His very Spirit is with us, keeping our hearts soft, giving us perseverance and proven character through these tribulations, ultimately resulting in hope. And we stand differently with a peace that the world cannot know by Kubler-Ross's model. For while we were still helpless at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That floods human grief with faith. So faith in my grief literally washes out the heartaches and the pains and the tribulations of this life. The love of God in Jesus Christ is our greatest source of human healing. And I'm talking about emotional healing from loss and grief 
I'm talking about physical healing and spiritual healing. My friends, it is the love of God in Jesus Christ, even ultimately to our healing that will result in our eternal lives. It's through Jesus. And Jesus, listen to me, and Jesus in all his humanity, he knows it and he feels it and he understands us. And so in John chapter 11, verse 32, go back and let's, let's walk into this weeping of Jesus and understand it just a little better. John eleven thirty-two. 32, therefore when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary and Martha again are in the throes of grief. They're on the front edge. This is raw and, and it's an open wound right now. Very painful. And she says, if you had only been here, and I, again, I do not see Mary or Martha, either one is lashing out in anger at Jesus, but lashing out, yes, in pain and in heartache. If you had only been here. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled Deeply moved and troubled. The emotions of Martha and Mary, that makes sense to me. It should to any of us. The emotions of, of the Jews who are with them, because you've got a mixture there, the, the Jews who were friends of theirs, who knew Lazarus, who were weeping alongside them, who had gone to be with them, hearing about the loss of Lazarus. But you also have other Jews, and this part of the culture, I don't really get this, but part of the culture was the professional mourners, who if you were poor, you might be able to afford just one, but if you were well off, you could afford to bring in a whole group of professional mourners. Now, we think that's kind of weird, paying people to come and weep and mourn. It was more than that. It was, it was bringing people in who would help assuage the pain, who could be with you and be present with you. And when you're weeping, they would weep with you. And so you'd have this sense of community in the loss. So it's not a bad idea the way they went about it. But all of these Jews gathered around, Mary, Martha, weeping in their true pain, and then the friends who knew Lazarus weeping as well, and then the mourners around them who were there to try to comfort and bring, bring some kind of sense of, of togetherness in this heartache. I understand all of that mourning. I understand that grief. That, that makes sense to me. But from Jesus? When we get into verse 33, it's, it's very strange, and it should be strange to us, to see that he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. This is the same Jesus who, as I said, chose to stay back and wait until he knew Lazarus was dead before making his way to Mary and Martha there in Bethany. This is the same Jesus who knew exactly what he was about to miraculously undertake. He knew what he was gonna do. That's why he stayed back. He even declared it to the apostles very clearly why he was waiting, and what he was going to do. Jesus knew all of this, and yet we see this surprising effusion of emotions just pouring out of Jesus. He's deeply moved, and he's troubled. And you look at that and go, why? You knew what you were gonna do. Note this, he exhibits three emotions that John tells us about in this chapter. Number one, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit. Deeply moved in spirit, John says, not in soul, in spirit. That's intense. You can't even say here, Jesus was moved to the depths of his soul. No, you have to say he was moved to the depths of his spirit, to the very heart of Jesus. As deep as you can go, Jesus was spiritually rent with sorrow and grief in this moment. Now, before I answer the question of why, let's answer this question. Does the Holy Spirit experience grief? Well, you Bible students know, Ephesians chapter four, verse 30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So obviously the Holy Spirit knows grief, can feel the sorrow of grieving as Ephesians 4.30 tells us. And the word grieve in Ephesians chapter four, verse 30 is lupete, and it means to cause sadness, distress, or sorrow. 
Do not bring distressing sorrow to the Holy Spirit, Paul says. So I wonder, how, how can we grieve the Spirit of God? How do we grieve the Creator? And let me just read this to you because Paul tells us. Listen to the context of this do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who, who hear. So we can bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit by using ugly words, unwholesome words, harmful words. That grieves the Lord. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Do not give him sorrow. Do not give him distress. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So unwholesome or worthless words will grieve God. Tearing others down. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. All of these things cause the spirit of God grief. Causes him to feel sorrow. God is not detached, brothers and sisters, from us. He is very engaged and involved. And one hurtful word from me to a brother or a sister hurts the spirit of God. But grief in Christ, that is a godly, divine grief, can develop kindness, a tender heart, and the very forgiveness of Christ in you. So yes, we can grieve the spirit of the Lord and Jesus is deeply moved in spirit. Second thing we see back in John 11, verse 33, it says, and he was troubled. Jesus was troubled. Which is odd because he's the very one who soon would say to the apostles, do not let your hearts be troubled. Same word. Don't let your hearts be troubled. But here Jesus is troubled. So when Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled, he knew what he was talking about. <laughs> he knew what that meant. He knew how that felt. But the implication is, and it's very interesting in the Greek syntax of verse 33, when it says he was troubled, the, the, the Greek implies he troubled himself. He troubled himself. The word troubled is eteroxin. It means an inward commotion, restlessness, or mental disquiet. And Jesus was mentally disquieted. There's a commotion going on in Jesus' soul. He's deeply moved in spirit. He's troubled in his soul. He has troubled himself with what's going on around him. This means, this word means to be disturbed from your composure, which is unusual because Jesus was typically composed. In fact, being divine, he was typically, regardless of the situation, even in the storms on the sea, he was serene. He was measured. He was his peaceful self, even all the way to the cross of Calvary. But in this moment, we see a Jesus who is deeply moved in spirit and, and, and moved in spirit and troubled. There's a commotion going on inside of Jesus. So let me ask you this. Do you think Jesus understands when you get knocked off your game? When you're disturbed over a situation? You think Jesus gets it when you read the news and you just shake your head and you, you, there's a commotion going on in your soul? Think Jesus understands? Do you realize, I, I know you do, don't even have to ask this, but COVID did that. COVID knocked so many of us off of our game and out of our typical serene self. COVID made people angry that I've never seen angry before. COVID upset people that I never had seen upset. COVID is still stressing out people, not, not the disease so much, but the, the global response to it and what's been foisted upon us and what everybody's had to deal with in the last two years Many people lashed out, freaked out, seethed with anger, almost as if we were going through the five stages of grief. I think the whole world has been on an emotional level. Going through the stages of grief and many without Christ, what a horrible place to be. 
I'll tell you what, if anything should cause compassion for a lost world to well up within us, it's what the world has had to go through in the last two years without Jesus. We've been able to go through this with him. Now, that doesn't mean we haven't been knocked off our game, I have. And I have been, at times, frustrated because of what was going on behind the scenes, because of what we were dealing with, acting in ways that I would not normally have acted. But man, I was knocked out of my typically serene state. So the question is, how do we compose our lives after something like all this? How do we turn to brothers and sisters in Christ with diametrically opposed opinions about masks and vaccinations and all the other stuff? How do we do that? Well, we compose our lives by looking again to Jesus. And I'm so thankful in the fellowship of believers we have Jesus to bring us together because I don't know how the world's gonna do it. I don't know how the world's gonna come back together. I don't know how this nation is gonna come back together with a, a unified sense of, of, of uh, loyalty and nationalism and patriotism. I, I, don't, I don't know how that's gonna work. But we have Jesus bringing us together. We have Jesus helping us realize it doesn't really matter what our opinions are about anything if we hold fast to Jesus Christ. He brings us together. But here's Jesus knocked off his game. Hey, understand, he gets it. He even knows what it feels like to be troubled, to be upset by what's going on, to have a commotion in his own spirit, to, to literally be in that moment upset by what's happening. So how do we compose our lives? Well, we begin by seeing Jesus compassionately and personally. We recognize he gets us. He really does. Verse 34, they said, he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. So that's the third emotion that we see expressed here. First, he's deeply, he's, he's deeply uh, moved in spirit, and then he's troubled, and now we see Jesus. It, it starts coming out of his eyes. Jesus wept. But get this. This is a moment of truly intimate weeping, and you might make a, a note in your Bibles about this. This is not the same weeping we see with Mary and the mourners, <laughs> which strikes me that could almost be a 60s band. Mary and the mourners. Anyway, I don't know. Maybe that wouldn't have been a good idea. Mary and this group of Jews and Martha mourning all together says they were weeping when Jesus, verse 33, saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping. But that word for weeping is not the same word as Jesus wept. Their word for weeping is the typical word for weeping. It's loud, mournful crying. It's tearful weeping out loud. The word is clio. They were clio, they were, and you could hear it, and they were all mourning together. But the weeping of Jesus, when it says Jesus wept, he didn't join in with the, with the outward emotion like that, the loud crying. This word for Jesus, Jesus wept, is decruo, and decruo means to shed tears or to tear up. So the difference is they're mourning loudly, crying out, and Jesus has tears running down his face. He's not howling, he's not groaning. He has tears running down his face quietly, a welling up of the grief that he feels. But you have to come back to the question, what is it that would make Jesus tear up at this time? Why is Jesus going through this when he knows what he's about to do, when he intended what he's about to do? Why is Jesus welling up? And many people would say, well, they're tears of compassion. He's a compassionate man. He's a compassionate God. So when he saw Martha and Mary and the Jews around them all weeping together, it, it, he, he couldn't help himself. Okay, perhaps, maybe. I mean, I easily tear up in movies and TV shows. I do. The old Hallmark commercials would come on and I'd be sitting there going, I've done it. Cheryl would look over me. There's a tear running down my face. Are you serious? I, it's a good commercial. Come on. By the way, did you get the phone number? Anyway, no. I, you know, I, I, I can feel that emotion. What's interesting with, with me is any emotion, when I get really emotional about something, if I get angry, I feel it in my eyes. My eyes burn. If I get upset, my eyes burn. They fill up. 
So I, I, I understand that there, there's, there's a sense of compassion and all this going on around and, the, and in all of his humanity. Of course, Jesus would tear up. He's, he's human and he's God and he's compassionate. So yes, but watch this. Verse 37. They said, see how he loved him. Verse 37, but some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? And so verse 38, Jesus again being deeply moved, that's repeated from verse 33, came to the tomb. All right, deeply moved in spirit, troubled, Jesus wept. And now, for the second time, we go back to the first emotion. Jesus was deeply moved in spirit. Here, it literally says he was deeply moved within. So in his heart of hearts, he's deeply moved. He starts out deeply moved. He gets to troubled, and then he's weeping. Now he's back to deeply moved. And I told you, grief is nonlinear. <laughs> There's not a pattern to it. Grief is going to come as grief comes, depending on the person. But the point is that John doubles down describing this particular emotion in Jesus, that he is deeply moved. I didn't give you the definition for it before. The word is imbrimaomai. And this word imbrimaomai in the Greek, it's a horseman's word. Now, I've told you about another horseman's word in the Greek, the word that uh, Luke uses when Jesus is in the garden and he trembles. That's a horseman's word. Like a horse will shudder when it's very disturbed or very upset and you want to get away. If a horse is shuddering, don't go near it. But this is another unique word in the Greek, a horseman's word, imbramaomai, which means to snort with anger. A shuddering horse is one thing. A horse that snorts, you're about to get kicked. And that's the word that is used here twice for Jesus being deeply moved. As a human being, this is how we should translate it. Jesus was outraged. Jesus was outraged. He was troubled. He wept. He was outraged. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 says, Be angry, yet do not sin. Now, the, the same word, the equivalent word in the Hebrew, Psalm 4, verse 4, and Paul is quoting from that, is tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. And the, the encouragement from the scriptures is when you get to this point of anger and trembling, by the way, the word tremble in the Hebrew means rage, rage. So what Paul is quoting in Ephesians 4.26 is not just be angry and do not sin, it's rage, but do not sin. That stuff will well up in you. Some commentators in trying to understand this passage, and they, and they are, they're, they're commentators, so don't take them too seriously. They're small potatoes. Commentators, you know, they're just ordinary spuds. Anyway, Anyway, to, they, they say that the emotions of Jesus, and you can read this over and over, the emotions of Jesus were in response to those weeping around him at the, at the full tomb, at the tomb of Lazarus. He sees all the weeping, and so empathetically, he, he responds. Yes, that's empathetic. It's also helpless and hopeless. For Jesus to be weeping in this moment, as a matter of fact, and I fully agree with this commentator, who's a little more than common, he's a good one. Uh, D.A. Carson says, it is lexically, or lexically inexcusable, that is, it's bad translating, to reduce this emotional upset to the effects of empathy for others' grief, pain, or the like. That is not the translation. And, and sadly, what we, we see this in, in many different translations, this, this softening of what it really says when it says that Jesus was deeply moved. It is fair to say the overriding emotion of Jesus at this point, at the tomb of Lazarus, was outrage, anger, and indignation. He's grieving, but he is angry. And that is what the word literally, graphically expresses. So now you stop and go, okay, wait a minute, though. I mean, most, most translations, they weaken this. 
Deeply moved, deeply moved. The NASB says deeply moved. That's, that's okay, but it's not strong enough for what the word describes. The King James translation says he groaned, not strong enough. Other translations say he, he, he sighed heavily or was deeply touched. No, he was outraged. Jesus is grieving in this moment a grief of outrage. It is a weeping that is driven by an anger, a singular anger within Jesus. What is it that aroused this outrage? In the normally composed and gentle Messiah, what would cause Jesus such a strong and angry reaction? Again, tears and a troubled or disquieted spirit and now a sharp indignation that, that literally bookends his feelings start to finish. And here's the answer. I told you already that we see Jesus weep three times in the gospel stories. Over Jerusalem in Luke 19, 44, Jesus weeps. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Hebrews 5, 7, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all mentioned this. And now here, at the death of Lazarus, his dear friend, three times Jesus weeps. Each time he wept, whether it was tearful, troubled, or indignant, it was always over the consequence of sin and what it's done to people's lives. That's Jesus' reaction to sin. Not harsh judgment, not anger at the person, but anger at the outcome, anger at the fallout, anger at the consequences of our sin choices. Our sin, it tore Jesus up. Our sin angers the Father. Our sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Listen to me, God weeps when sin ravages our lives. He hates it. Some Christians would rather not address the lost state of non-believers. We just don't want to talk about it. A brother, sister, family member, a friend that we just don't want to, you know, yeah, I'm going out to dinner with them tonight, but I'm not going to talk about Christianity or Jesus or anything else because it's just too uncomfortable. It's too painful. I don't even want to think about it because it's too grievous for my heart. Do you remember what Spurgeon said? There cannot be any error in following where Jesus leads the way. And Psalm 126 verse five says, those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, which is the word, shall come indeed again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Remember the old hymn, bringing in the sheaves? The Bible tells us that even our evangelism should be fraught with sorrow and weeping and grief. We grieve over the lost state of our loved ones. And it is that, and we are willing to enter that grief like Jesus was willing to enter that grief if it makes us uh, tear up, if it angers us, if it grieves us, because with our little bag of seed, we can seed lives, we continue to pour the seed out, and we pray that God will make it take root. And when it does, guess what? We will with joy come bringing in the sheaves. Why was Jesus a man of sorrows? Because he came into a sin-filled, sick, sorrowful world and he grieved at the lostness, but he did what was necessary to bring us home. And you wouldn't even be here this morning if Jesus wasn't willing to grieve over your sin and mine. Verse 39, Jesus said, remove the stone. And Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew you always heard, hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come Forth, and the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. The grief of Jesus, the sorrow of Jesus, listen, 
Far more than any empathy, the grief and sorrow of Jesus was his own. It was his own. To say the emotions of Jesus were compelled by anything other than a deep love for Lazarus and for those standing around misses his passion for humanity. It misses his love and it misses his understanding of our humanity. Jesus wept because he hates that sin brings death. He hates that sin causes sorrow. He just hates sin and all of its consequence. And so Jesus wept. Let's finish with uh, Psalm 56. Turning your Bibles over to Psalm 56 is the last thing I want to share on this. Psalm 56. And this for anyone who is currently grieving. And your grief may be over a loved one who you know is lost and is just heading for a lost state eternally. It may be grieving over a, a, an immediate personal loss, something you've gone through. Let the Bible tend to your wounds. Psalm 56, verse eight. David says, David says, you have taken account of my wanderings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? David here expresses what so many of us have felt and, and or will feel. He expresses grief and sorrow in the days of his wandering. Grief and sorrow. And I think about that. What are the days of my wandering? Well, my prior lostness and my running away from God and my denials of God and my rebellion toward God and my confusion and my humanity. These are all my wanderings. And Jesus has taken account of them all. He is fully aware of the mess of my life and the intimacy of his awareness, even of my sorrow. It's more than we can even comprehend. It truly is. When you and I sorrow to the depths of our soul, when we are deeply moved in spirit, in spirit, it is not as deep as the one who is deeply moved in spirit, the eternal one who is deeply moved in spirit. We will never comprehend the depth to which Jesus grieves over our sin and our pain and yes, even our loss. But notice again, he said in verse eight, you put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? How close does God have to be to catch your tears and put them in a bottle? I don't let anybody that close to my face except Cheryl. Maybe my kids. You know, if you come up to me and I'm getting coffee on a Sunday morning, you try and get your face that close to me, I'm going to be like, dude, back off. Little personal space here. God keeps your tears in a bottle. To take a bottle and come right up to your face, he would have to be touching your face. I, I'm just making the point that this is so amazingly intimate. He keeps my tears in a bottle. He, he, and then he puts them in his book. And you read that and think, what? He's kept a tender tally of all my tears. Why? Why are you storing up my tears, Lord? And the answer is, so as not to miss a single one. Because you see, Revelation 21, 4 says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Jesus, thank you for your deep love for us. Thank you for allowing us to see you weep. Not just the one time, but all three times when you wept over the carnage of sin in lives, in cities, in this world. Jesus, thank you for showing us how you feel about these things. You've spoken the truth to us. You are the truth. But to show us that tender human emotion, allowing us to see, Lord, your outrage 
and your weeping and your troubled state in this moment. This speaks volumes to us. And there is something, Lord Jesus, very healing in recognizing your emotional reaction to us. And so we thank you for that. And I pray, Father, as we, as we now download all these things and consider these things, whether it's right now or through the day or this week, that you simply would tend to the wounds of your people, that you would soften them with oil, that you would press them out, that you would bandage them with a bandaging, Lord, that is unlike Lazarus that was restrictive. Lord, your bandaging is healing and strengthening. And so I pray for anyone in a stage of grief or a place of sorrow that your spirit would now tend to us. Thank you for being our God in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.